This is the Healthy Aging Podcast from Clover Health, exploring a wide variety of medical and wellness issues for older adults and their families. Here's your host, Jason Alderman. Welcome back. We are talking today with Dr. Kumar Damarajan. He is the Chief Scientific Officer here at Clover. He's a geriatric cardiologist, and he is our resident expert on all things senior citizen. Kumar, thanks for being here. I'm happy to be here. We are talking about heart health today. You're a cardiologist. You're a geriatric cardiologist. This makes it particularly relevant, doesn't it? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Let me take a step back. You're in medical school. Why did you decide to be a geriatric cardiologist? And do you choose that simultaneously or do you go down the geriatric path and then you become a cardiologist on top of that? How How does that work? Do you want to know the true story? I want to hear the true story. So my father is a geriatrician. My mother is a cardiologist. So, and uh, they are both extremely happy in their professional careers. They, uh, my dad is seventy-five; he still works sixty hours a week by choice. My mother is sixty-eight, still very much full-time. They love their jobs, and so the apple didn't fall too far from the tree. But you know, I, I, I wanted to take it in a, in a in a different way, and you know, I think on the one hand, geriatrics is a really holistic approach to understanding older adults biopsychosocial conditions that many physicians, frankly, they don't think about or talk about or treat with the same focus, but are super important to older adults, like urinary incontinence or falls. And, you know, they're not very, frankly, sexy conditions from, um, you know, the medical perspective, but they're very important. So I really like that perspective. I really like thinking about holistically and policy and systems of care. That's geriatrics. And the cardiology really is just you know, it's fascinating. It's an area of medicine where we have a lot of evidence, a lot of really cool and impactful treatments. And, you know, I love both. And I obviously couldn't make up my mind. And, and you please both parents. And I please both parents. <laughs> Although, frankly, they didn't actually even push me into medicine, but they were just really happy with their careers. And, you know, I think by osmosis, it just impacted me. It's terrific. All right. I'm a senior citizen. What should I be talking to my doctor or nurse practitioner about for heart health? What should I be focused on? Jason, you don't look like a senior citizen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Kumar, but let's pretend. Okay, sure. Four things you should talk about. So one is, um, do I need to take aspirin for what's called primary prevention? So I haven't had a heart attack or a stroke or a major heart problem what should I do with aspirin? I thought baby aspirin was a thing to do. And the reality is over the last few years, we've gotten a lot more data on that. The whole medicine has gotten more data on it. And while it used to be a frequent recommendation, it's no longer a recommendation. Is that right? It is right. Because the benefit in in most, not, not all, this is on average, in most cases, the benefit in terms of preventing strokes and heart attacks, the reason people take baby aspirins it's modest at best, but probably none in many cases, but there's always a risk of bleeding that goes up, right? Aspirin is a blood thinner. So while it might prevent clots developing in the heart, that's a heart attack or in the brain, a stroke, it actually can cause bleeding from other parts of our body. And that's really changed over the last- You're rocking my world here, Kumar. This is- Are you on a baby aspirin? No, but I'm just, <laughs> okay. I, 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 I missed the memo that that wasn't a thing. So are you saying that the, the recommendation now is less for all senior citizens to, to with a baby aspirin for heart health or only sort of pro, proactively if you don't have any- pre-existing conditions, if you will. So let's take a couple of groups. So one, so if you've had a heart attack or a stroke 
or blood clots in your legs, this doesn't refer to you, right? Those people generally should be on a blood thinner like aspirin as long as there's no specific contraindications in that person. So let's push that group aside. We're not talking about it. I'm talking about the group who hasn't had one of those events so far. In general, you shouldn't be on an aspirin per the current recommendations. Now, there are groups of people where you're in that middle ground. So as an example, folks with diabetes. So we know that diabetes increases your risk of heart attacks and strokes and other cardiovascular problems. And so you're not at the lower risk of the general population, right? So the aspirin in you might actually reduce your risk of some of those complications. So what I would say is this is an individualized discussion with your doctor, but don't just assume that a baby aspirin is something you should be taking. Well, if you, And if you've been on baby aspirin, we, we have a bunch of people in the U.S. and around the world who've been taking baby aspirins for a number of years. I wouldn't just say stop it. Go talk to your doctor. Because if you've been someone, this is like a patient I saw on Tuesday of this week, you know, she is 98 years old, mentally fully with it. She's been on a baby aspirin for 35 years. Mm. And she's That's a never, long time. Uh-huh, and she's never had a complication from it. She's never had, you know, bleeding problems. You know, aspirin can cause stomach upset or ulcers. She's never had that. And so while the recommendations have changed, we had a conversation about it. And she kind of wanted to keep taking it. There wasn't a clear reason I could say, don't take it because we've tolerated it well for 30 plus years. But I think that's the exception rather than the rule. But so I think it's it's a conversation with your doctor. So I think that's area number one. Okay. Let's let's get, you know, let's discuss that aspirin situation. I think another, I think just an important thing to bring up with your doctor heart health wise is should I be on a statin medication? Mm. So you've probably heard of some of these Lipitor, yep. which is the yep. generic name is a tour of a statin. Crestor, that's mm. the brand name. The I generic, see these commercials, don't I? Uh, you must. The generic name is Rosuvastatin. These medications lower cholesterol, and they can can prevent heart attacks. But at the same time, they can cause complications, like many meds can. They can cause some liver abnormalities. Again, these are rare. They can more commonly cause muscle aches and muscle problems. Or there's even this question as to whether they can even cause diabetes, right? And so, on the one hand you're weighing, you know, cardiovascular benefit, prevention of heart attacks and strokes. And on the other hand, you know, other things, right, that you don't want to have like muscle aches or diabetes or anything like that. And so that's also been a real active area of research and data production for medicine over the last few years. And I wouldn't say there's one answer, but we do know now that generally, if you have diabetes, you should be on these medicines, generally, right? I'm not going to go into the specifics of, you know, which one, the dose, because statins come in a lot of flavors, right? Some what are called low intensity, moderate intensity, high intensity. But in general, if you're a diabetic, you should be on one of those medications. Are these, can I just pause for a second? Because this uh, is sounding complicated to me. Yeah. Are these the kind of conversations you can have with your, you know, your, your general practitioner, your internist, your nurse practitioner, or do you have to have these conversations with a specialist? Absolutely. You can have these conversations with a general practitioner. Okay. Now, a specialist might be appropriate in more complicated cases, but all the things I'm discussing now are, again, it's like the aspirin discussion. It's not like you've already had a heart attack or a stroke or a major cardiovascular you know, complication. It's you haven't had those yet, and you're wondering, should I take this medication to prevent something bad from happening, right? So we know 
if you're one of those people in the first group where something bad has happened, you know, history repeats itself, frankly, right? So what's the greatest predictor of having a heart attack or stroke? Well, having a, had a heart attack or stroke <laughs> in the past, right? And so you're in a different group, right? And so there you really care about reducing those risks. And so you're more likely to need an aspirin or a med to reduce your cholesterol because one of these statin medications because cholesterol and high levels of it contribute to heart attack and strokes. So again, we're talking about that group that hasn't had that complication yet. And so here, I think the important thing to know is there's actually now a math equation out there that can help you understand whether you should be on one of these medicines or not, these statin medications. Mm -hmm. Patients don't have to memorize this, right? But it includes things like, you know, do you smoke? What's your blood pressure? Do you have diabetes? How old are you? What's your sex? Things like that. Mm. Uh, really? Gender plays a role in that? Yeah. Yeah. So men are generally at higher risk uh. of cardiovascular complications. Uh. And so, you know, whether to your question, whether you're a cardiologist or a primary care physician or family practitioner, that equation is now well known across all all, I would say, in the medical fields. And you can just go online with your doctor and he or she can just plug in that data and really help you come up with a really reasoned data-driven decision on whether you should be on one of these cholesterol-lowering drugs. So we talked about aspirin. We talked about these statin cholesterol-lowering drugs. The third category should be, I think, you know, how much exercise should I get, right? And you know, the current recommendations are actually that you should get between 150 and, 100 and 300 minutes of exercise a week if that's moderate intensity exercise. And those are things. So what is moderate yeah. intensity exercise? Nope. Yeah. You know, that's brisk walking, could be swimming. You know, things like that, you know, doubles tennis, depending on how you play. <laughs> I think it depends on, you know, you know, people's style of play, let's yeah. say that. But that would fall into that moderate intensity bucket or between 75 and 150 minutes of high intensity exercise. You can so you're not talking about CrossFit necessarily, uh -huh. but you know, singles tennis yeah. or you know, jogging, uh -huh. right? Or running. This uh, a, this a, that's a long time. And yeah. this is this is for this is for people who are 65 and older. We're not talking about 30 It's for everybody. Right? Everybody. Oh, everybody should be doing this. Yeah. I mean, barring those people who have, you know, a medical contradiction, sure. right? So I'm not talking about people in whom exercise would be unsafe. Right. So if you have someone with a special, you know, heart valve problem, for example, there's this condition called aortic stenosis, where inside your heart, one of the valves that determines blood flow from, you know, the four different chambers of your heart gets quote unquote stenotic or it shrinks down in size and blood can't go through that spacing room. I'm not going to tell that person to do, you know, 300 minutes of moderate or high intensity sure. exercise. So sure. that's just an example. But in general, whether you're younger or yeah. older, the recommendation is between 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity or 75 to 150 of high intensity. And actually that number has gone up in yeah, it 2018. Seems, it sounds high. Yeah. And, and let me ask this because I, I think there is, there, there's a, a degree of fatalism out there, not just among senior citizens, but about among all of us, which is, this is the sort of the rationalization we have with ourselves, but you know, when we're thinking about whether we're going to go to the gym or not on any given day, which is if I can't get that full amount, if I can't get the, the recommended amount, is it worth it? Is it like, well, I only have 30 minutes today anyway. I was supposed to get 45 an hour. Oh, forget it. It's just not, if I can't get an hour, it's not worth it. Is, is that true? Should we, if we can't get the whole enchilada, should we just not care? Should we give up? Absolutely not. I think little is better than nothing. 
and more is better than some and some is better than little. I didn't say that exactly the right order, but you get the point. <laughs> yeah. You know, we should do what we can. And actually, there's a recent study that came out that, you know, gets at this issue of steps, right? You mm-hmm. know, we may have heard this magic number of 10,000 steps I a day. just got my mother-in-law a step counter. She's very focused on getting her, her 10,000 steps. And there's nothing wrong. Let me first say about the 10,000, but that wasn't actually a data-driven endpoint, right? I think that was often maybe a commercially-driven endpoint. And so there's actually a study that came out today, that uh, not today, but recently, that showed if you get about 4,000 steps, about, you're getting benefits, you get more if you get more, but interestingly, in this study, the benefits seem to peak out at between seven and eight thousand. And again, this is just one study, right? So it's not saying, you know, I can exercise more, so I'm going to stop. So I would never recommend someone just stop at seven thousand steps. But I think it addresses your point that even if you get to four thousand, there's a benefit. You don't need to get to ten thousand. And in this study, by seven thousand five hundred, you've definitely gotten to a benefit. So I think, you know. Do what you can. Don't be daunted by that 300-minute thing. If, if you can't do 300 minutes, you're not, you're not a failure. You're not a failure. Tell me physically so about what this means. What, what happens in the heart or the arteries or whatever is important on this when you're getting this exercise? Because we, we've heard this from day one, right? I mean, we, we, we know exercise is good for us. I don't think anybody doubts it. But I, I don't think, other than maybe losing weight, I don't think I have a good idea of what physically happens to improve your health when you're exercising? What, what changes? Right. So, you know, I can start with cardiovascular. So exercise, yes, you do lose weight, but it also, it can lower your blood pressure, right? So the biggest at a population level contributor to heart attacks and strokes is high blood pressure, right? And so, you know, physical activity lowers your blood pressure. While you're exercising, your blood pressure may transiently go up, and that's normal, and that's not a problem. But overall, your blood pressure goes down. Exercise also lowers insulin resistance. So what is insulin resistance? So it's what causes diabetes. So our body, when we take in food, blood sugar comes goes into our bloodstream, gets eaten by us, it gets absorbed. And we have an organ called the pancreas that secretes insulin, and insulin takes that sugar in our blood and pushes it into cells. And so our blood sugar levels go down. That's, we all have that, right? And so insulin resistance is when the insulin is not working as well because our cells are not responding. They're resistant to the effects of the insulin. And so the blood sugar is higher you know, as a result. And exercise lowers insulin resistance. And so you're less likely to get diabetes and diabetes is bad for a whole bunch of reasons, right? Cardiovascular and otherwise, it can cause eye disease, kidney disease, you know, a whole bunch of things. I mean, that's just two examples, you know, mood, right? So let's get outside of cardiology and cardiovascular. We know that exercise improves people's mood and is one of the things that is, you know, helpful in reducing depression and things like that. And so, Exercise is good for many, many reasons. You know, it gives us more energy, all those good things. And so losing weight is important, but I think it just makes us feel better and our bodies work better. So is there a special kind of exercise that's better? You know, I, I hear there's no talk, no shortage of talk in, in my among my friend group, which shows you how uninteresting we are, about cardio versus like weights and building muscle versus you know, versus losing weight or versus the car, this cardio work, which I guess I think of as like running or being on a treadmill or, or, um, all those, uh, Nordic track machines that you see in the gym. What, 
Is there one that's, especially for senior citizens, is there one that's better than the other or do you need both? I think I w- I'm going to even say you need more than both. You Whoa. need three things. What's a third? Right. Sort of balance and flexibilities training, right? Because it can lower falls and other things. Think yoga, think stretching. And so, you know, historically, exercise mostly meant cardio, historically speaking. Right. But over time, we've realized for seniors actually in particular, because as you get older, you lose muscle mass. That happens with aging over time. So that group especially needs weight training to improve that muscle mass. And again, I'm not talking about bench pressing huge amounts of weights, right? I'm talking about reasonable weight training, right? You know, low weights, lots of reps, those sort of things. And so we now know over time, so cardio, strengthening, and, you know, flexibility, it, it's all important, ah. right? And okay. so ideally your regimen includes a little of all of that and not just the cardio. But I would say if all you're going to do is cardio, it's still better than doing nothing to your earlier question. I keep bringing my family members into it because I think, I think of them when I think of this. So my mother-in-law, very, you know, very fit octogenarian. She goes, she lives at a really nice facility that has exercise classes. She doesn't break a sweat. You know, she does exactly what they ask her to do, and she goes to the prescribed time. She's very faithful about it, but she literally doesn't break a sweat. Is that, a, is that like, do you need to do that? Do you need to feel like, you know, you've just been in the round with uh, Rocky Balboa to feel like you've actually accomplished something? I think there's a middle ground between Rocky Balboa and not breaking a sweat. And so I would say, you know, the example you gave, you know, maybe she needs a little bit more right? Which is not to say don't do those exercise classes. She might like doing them for fun. There's probably, there might be a social component to it, right? And so everyone gets value in different ways from these interactions and classes. But I would say for her, maybe because she's already in pretty good shape, to your point, she really needs to get to that moderate to higher intensity to really work her body in the way that she needs to, right? And so you know, there are probably some people in that class who are struggling. And so that may even be too much for them, uh, right, uh, as a start. And so uh, for her, I, I would say keep doing it if you like doing it, but she might need some more. Well, that's it for today, but we will continue our conversation with Kumar on heart health in our next episode. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Healthy Aging Podcast from Clover Health. If you like what you heard, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to share with your friends and family. For more information about Clover, visit www.cloverhealth.com.